0: I invite you this morning to turn in our Father's Word to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and I want to read verses 1 through 5 and verses 10 through 14. While you're turning, let me say it's an honor to be here to share in this service with you today. I also want to take the opportunity to thank you for your Kindness to our son Jonathan and to his family this morning, I want to share some of the last words of Moses to the children of Israel before he would leave them, and they would go on into the promised land, and the words of to people on a pilgrimage to the promised land, as you and I are on that pilgrimage. And there's instructions and lessons here for us today. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1, Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you. That man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your shoes did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Then verse 10, words of warning. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Steve referred to the other Dr. Phil. He, at the beginning of his program, says this will be a changing day in your life. I want to assure you that just because I'm here, it will not be a changing day in your life. But because God is here, it can be. Let's pray for that. Father, change us. For we need to be changed. And we know what that change should be. Make us like Jesus. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Question. Who gives you the most problems. My son said that he was at a minister's meeting recently and one guy said, Who's hurting you? Same idea. Who gives you the most hurt? Who gives you the most problems? I heard of three guys who were working on the construction of a skyscraper. They were on the forty third floor. At lunchtime they sat down one of the girders to have their lunch. The first one said, if my wife has put tuna fish sandwiches in my lunch again, I'm going to really give it to her when I get home. Opened them up, sure enough, tuna fish sandwiches. He says, well, just wait till I get home. I'm going to let her know what I think of her tuna fish sandwiches. Second guy said, if, if I have ham and cheese sandwiches again, I'm just going to throw them away. He opened up, sure enough, ham and cheese he threw them away. Third guy said, if, if I have egg salad sandwiches in my lunch, I'm going to jump off. <laughs> Opened up his lunch, and sure enough, egg salad sandwiches, he jumped off, 43 stores up. One guy said, yeah, I'm really surprised he did that. And the other guy says, yeah, I am too, especially since he makes his own lunches. So it answers the question, who gives us the most problems? It's us. Some of you may remember the old Pogo cartoons where he said, uh, we have met the enemy and it is us. If there was ever an example of people meeting an enemy and found it to be themselves, it was the children of Israel in the wilderness. They were their own worst enemy. And what should have been 11 days journey, chapter 1 and verse 2 tells us, ended up 40 years. And Moses records what God was doing with them. And and what God was doing with them was them through a, and I'm going to call it not a 12-step, but a three-step recovery program. And I think that there is an important application for us because the human heart hasn't changed. And we can learn from them. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that these things were written for our admonition so that we might learn these things about the children in the wilderness. And what I want to share with you is a three-step recovery program. And the first step is revelation. We need to have what is in us revealed. And that's what Moses says. That's what God was doing. In verse 2, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. And then in the next verse, he says that he was wanting to teach you that man does not live on bread alone. They thought they did. Verse 5, he says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord disciplines you. God was revealing what was inside of them, what was in their heart. And that's the first step. Years ago, I sat in chapel, student chapel, and heard the late Dr. Bob Jones Sr. make a statement that I've never forgotten. He said this, he said, a crisis does not make a man; it reveals a man. He's right. We often say, "Well, that crisis made that person." No, no. Two people can face the same crises, and one of them goes into meltdown; the other comes through it stronger. What was the difference? That crisis revealed that one had the character, that one had the hold on God that got them through, and the other didn't. And what we need is to have revealed to us what's in our heart. The children of Israel needed that. They didn't know there was rebellion in their heart until they got in the wilderness. They did not know there was pride in their heart until God humbled them. They didn't know there was unbelief and distrust in their heart until they were just nicely into the, into the, the, the wilderness and, and should have been ready to go into the promised land and they had just seen God's miraculous deliverance from Egypt and miraculous passing them through the Red Sea. They sent 12 spies in to the promised land and 10 came back and said, hey, we can't handle it. They're too big. The enemy's too strong. Unbelief. And that's what initiated this recovery program to reveal what was in them, to prepare them for the blessing of the promised land. And that's why it talks about tests that God tested them in verse 2. And he said that God tested them in verse 16. It's a test to reveal the problem. You see, it was a diagnostic test. A diagnostic test is for the purpose of revealing what's wrong with you, be it medical or with your automobile. People sometimes ask me, how's your cholesterol? And I'll say, it's good. Uh, well, what is it? I don't know. Well, how do you know it's good? Because I have this understanding with my doctor when he runs tests on me, and he does a bunch of them. Every couple of years, there's a cholesterol test. I have this understanding with him that no news is good news. I don't hear what's right with me. If I don't hear from you, I'll know everything's all right. And so I've had cholesterol tests. I didn't hear from them, and I trust my doctor. Therefore, my cholesterol is good. I don't know what level it is. I don't care. I wouldn't understand it anyway. I just know I'm okay. And, And I don't want to know what's right with me. I need to know what's wrong with me. It's the same to take your car into the auto repair place. You want them to do the diagnostic test and tell you what's wrong with it. You don't want to go to pick up your car and say, well, we did all these diagnostic tests and here's what's right with your car. We couldn't find what's wrong with it, but here's what's right with it. And now that would be $175, please. We want to know what's wrong. Years ago when Pastor Rick and I served together in Chatham, we both had the same make and model vehicle. I remember I was having trouble with mine, that it would cut out and wouldn't start, and then it would be all fine. It went into the dealer and got the service manager out, and he said, no, I don't know. He said we'd have to put diagnostic tests on it, and it would cost a certain amount. And I said, well, I'll just wait until it really gets bad. And then I discovered in the repair manual that that particular vehicle had a feature that if you had a problem with electrical or engine, you turn off the car, and then you turn the ignition on three times, and then the engine light will flash out a code, and the repair manual had the code for what, uh, identify what the problem was. And so I, next time I had a problem, I did that, I turned it on, and it flashed, I think it was a three and then a seven, I looked it up, and it was a sensor that was bad. Took it into the garage. Said, "I want that sensor replaced," and 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 they did. I didn't want them to go on a fishing expedition, and I said, "Just replace that," and and they did, and had no problem after. And and I was quite excited about that. I went back to the church, and I got a hold of Rick, and said, "Rick, come on out." I got to show you something. He said, "I'm busy." I said, "Come on out. This is important. He said, it "Better be important." I said, "It is." And so I, I told him, "I said, now you turn the ignition three times, and you'll see. If there's nothing wrong, it'll do." Five, 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 and blink five times, three times. So, he did it. And I said it's fine. But now, if you have a problem, it will blink another number. Make note of that number because it's a code. For what's wrong with it? And he saw. He said, "This is big. I got to go home and tell Lynn right now." <laughs> Took me a minute to realize he was making fun of me. He did not care whatsoever. <laughs> about, but to me, it's important. I know what's wrong, so I can get a fix. And see, what God was doing is identifying what was wrong with them. He was putting them through tests, and God puts us through tests to reveal what's wrong with us. Because we have a difficult time. We can know what's right with us. We have a very difficult time recognizing what's wrong with us. We may not think we're really trusting in our job more than the Lord until we lose it. Or we, we may not think that we're, we're trusting in our financial portfolio so much until the stock market dies. We, we have to have tests that reveal what is wrong with us so that we'll know what's in our heart. That's the first step. Revelation. Second step I want to call renovation. Now, ordinarily, don't use alliteration. I gave it up several, number of years ago, but it sort of jumped out at me as I was preparing for this. And so... If you don't like it, bear with me. Second step is a complete change. That's what God was doing. Revealing them so he could change them. Verse 5, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so your God the Lord your God disciplines you. And that word discipline, at its very root, is what it means to instruct. It's frequently translated that way, especially in the wisdom literature. It is also translated punishment. But in almost every case, the punishment is not just punishment for the sake of punishment, but it's remedial, it's to instruct them, it is to change them. And we are going through a process of change and the knowledge is so we will change. I discovered... Uh, an interesting translation of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10. I'll just read it to you. Where Paul says that you have put off the old self as its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of its creator. And that word renewed is a, a word that that in in the New American Standard I was reading, in in the margin it said, literally, renovated. And so I checked it out, looked it up, and that's true. It means to make again into something new, something different. To renovate. And what we are undergoing, and what the children of Israel was undergoing, was an extreme makeover. I don't know whether you've seen the show on TV. I only saw it once, and they were doing a house not far from where we stay in Florida. But uh, the extreme makeover is different than what we experience, because in that case, they take the people out of the house, take them to a a hotel for a week or two, whatever while well, they tore that other house down and they made a completely new, beautiful mansion and completely furnished it, and then they would bring the people back and they were blindfolded or would have their hands over their eyes and all the <gasps> there it is, beautiful. And they would gasp and they'd take me in and they were amazed as, as they saw it. Well, that's not the way God makes us over. That's not the way he renovates us. It'd be nice if it was. It would be nice if, as soon as we come to Christ and receive him as our Lord and Savior and are baptized, that after we're baptized, okay, cover your eyes, we're going to get a mirror, and then they take you, okay, open your eyes, and we look in the mirror, and we are just like the Lord Jesus. It doesn't work that way. It's a renovation in which we're there all the time, we're involved. You ever had your house renovated while you're still living in it? Not nice. I remember moved into a parsonage in Medford, Massachusetts, early '70s, and they were renovating it, doing it by volunteer, and it took several months. And we were in plaster dust and uh, for, for for months. Not nice. See, we're present during this renovation, and we have part in that renovation. Because God says this is what you're to do. And sometimes we don't like it, and that is the conflict. Have you ever renovated a house yourself? Done some renovations with someone, particularly your spouse? You have some different ideas, how it should go. I am so glad that wallpaper is out of style. We have wallpapered together. How many, is there any here you've wallpapered with your spouse? Are are you still with the same spouse? (laughs) Test of a great marriage. I I actually thought about this in room premarital counseling when there was couples that I didn't think they were compatible. I never did this, but I felt like saying, listen, now here's what I want you to do. I want you two to go out and wallpaper a room together, and then if you still want to be married to each other, come back and see me. So you see, this was what God was doing with them. Renovating them. Changing them. Humbling them. Yanking them around. It says that he led them in the desert. And verse 3, that he caused them to be hungry. Then he fed them with manna. They got tired of manna to learn that there was more to life than physical food. They needed the word of God. It says in verse 16 or 14 through 16 that he led them through where there were snakes and scorpions. He, He led them where there was no water and then gave them water out of the rock. He was doing all of this to change them, to renovate them, to take out of them that pride that lack of confidence in God, that rebellion. You see, that's what God is doing with us. And lots of times we don't like it. He messes up our plans. He wants to replace our game plan with his game plan, and we think ours is best or better. And it takes us a while to discover that God always knows best. And so what God is doing through revealing and and renovating is, is chipping away at those things that make us our own enemy that cause us to make our own lunch and then jump off because... We don't like it. Well, there's a third and there's a final step, and I call that realization because all this revealing and all this renovating or disciplining changing them was to make them realize that they couldn't get along without God. They needed him. In fact, he wanted them to discover that he was all they needed. I think it was the late A.W. Tozer who said, we will never know that Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. You see, what was God doing? He was taking them places where God was all they had. They started out in the wilderness and they got hungry. And they looked around. No McDonald's. No Burger King. No, not even Tim Hortons. (laughs) Desperate. No food. All they had was God. But he gave them manna to know that God was all they needed. He he took them where there were snakes and scorpions. And they were frightened. And they didn't have or know the way through. They had no antidote for snake bites. And they were told to put a brazen serpent on a pole and look and they would live. And they found themselves in that place with no medical facilities, no 911 to call. All they had was God. They discovered God was all they needed. And when they found themselves in a waterless desert, tell it calls it, and there was no water, and they were dying of thirst, they would discover that God could give them water out of a rock. See, that's what God's doing with us. That's why God messes with us in our plans. Because, you see, if every relationship we had was just fine, we'd forget about God. If all of our plans worked out good... We could get along without God. And that's why if someone said, someone said, if you want to make God laugh, just tell him your plans. How many plans you've had that God interfered with, you didn't like it? Why? Well, he, he tells us very clearly why. We we read it. He says that when you're in the, the promised land, And and now you're eating, you're satisfied, verse 12, and you've got your fine houses built, and you've got your herds and your flocks, you don't need manna anymore. He says in verse 14, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then he says that, verse 17, you're not only going to forget God, you're going to think that you did it. And you will say my power and my strength and my hands have produced this wealth for me. And he says, what I am doing and yanking you around and, and messing with your plans and putting you through hunger and thirst and scorpions and snakes and wilderness. And that wilderness is called dreadful, and it is. Some of us, you were with us in that Sinai wilderness a few months ago, and I remember my wife saying, man, I was... No, I didn't picture the wilderness like this. It's nothing but sand and rocks. She, she was thinking of Canadian wilderness, you know, nice trees and meadows and so on. Nothing there. All they had was God. And God was doing that because he knew we have a tendency to forget him. We have a tendency to neglect him. We have a tendency to think we do not need him. So God would bring them to a place where all they had was God so they would discover that he was all they needed. You see, a lack of that's what got them in trouble the first place. In Numbers 13, we referred to where those 12 spies went into the promised land. Ten of them come back and said, no, we can't go. The enemies are like giants and we're like grasshoppers. We can't go. Uh, we've got to be stronger, we can't handle that. Only Joshua and Caleb, two of them, said, hey, we can do it because we have God and God's all we need. I mean, grasshoppers can take that land if God is with them. And as a result, only Joshua and Caleb ever saw that promised land because only Joshua and Caleb knew that God, is all we need. You see, that's our problem. We'll never discover that Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. And that's why the process that you and I are going through that involves testing, sometimes hurting, sometimes disappointment, confusion, is so that we're being driven to Jesus. And so we discover we can't live without him. And years ago, there was a young preacher engaged to a beautiful young woman. And then one day tragedy struck. That young preacher lost his eyesight and became blind. And then, before the wedding, a second tragedy came upon him when his fiancée came and told him that she just couldn't handle going through life, with a blind man, she was breaking off their engagement. He said they're devastated as he heard her footsteps for the last time walking out of his life. He would never marry. He became a preacher. His sister came and lived with him to take care of him very successful one, he would preach Sunday mornings to a congregation of 1,500. And then one day his sister came to him and announced to him that she was being married and could no longer take care of him and be leaving him. On the eve of his sister's wedding, he sat there overwhelmed with a sense of loneliness, aloneness. He thought back to the one that should have been his companion for life let him go. And now his sister was moving on with her life. He would be alone and have no one to take care of him. And then another thought overwhelmed him. He found a piece of paper and a pen. And George Matheson wrote these words, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. And he discovered that there's joy in pain in verse three, O joy that seeketh me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain, that morn shall tearless be. I wonder if there's anyone here who's been disappointed because someone whose love you thought would last forever let you go. Someone that you depended upon, that you thought you could depend upon for life and they let you down was to drive you to the Lord Jesus whose love will never let you go. He will never let you down. And I especially direct this if there's someone here who has never found this great lover of our soul, the Lord Jesus, that he's here with his promise that he will never leave us or forsake us, that no matter who does leave us, he will not. And if we will find him and follow him, we will experience the greatest thing in life, not just the forgiveness of our sins. But as he takes us through these tests, we find we become more like him. And someday, someday, as George Matheson wrote, when that morn will be, we'll be like him. Let's pray. Father, What we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us, we ask in Christ's name.